Hey team. Right. Um, yesterday was really cool. Went down to the river and Joel and Quinn made their public stand for Christ. Um, you know, sometimes I think, you know, we're, we desire and, and we'd like, like to see the flesh Harry works of the Holy Spirit, but I think we miss that gentle work of the Holy Spirit and working in hearts and bringing sinners to repentance. You know, and the Holy Spirit's still working. And, you know, the, the grin on Joel's mum's face, it's just showed to me there's obviously an awful lot of prayers and robe tugging went on for Joel. And, and that's what I think it's encouragement for, you know, those parents in the same position, or even children, their parents aren't saved. You know, keep, keep those prayers going, keep that robe tugging, let that Holy Spirit quietly work in hearts. So that, that was a real encouragement. Uh, and it was really cool to see a husband and wife making that public stand together. You know. so, so that was really cool. Um, now on to my sermon. Uh, Hop and Jenny have actually pretty well done the introduction to what I'm speaking on. And I think maybe that is something the Lord would have us... Um, you know, know as we go into this new year. Um, so I'll start with prayer and then we'll get into it. Oh Heavenly Father, we first will give you thanks for your Holy Spirit that's still working, bringing sinners to repentance. So we thank you for for Joel and Quinn who made that public stand yesterday that they're not ashamed to call you God so I thank you for that Lord help us to keep praying to keep tugging on your road trusting that you will do all according to your will so I thank you for these for your word, Lord, I thank you for what you've given me this last six weeks or so of seeking you on this. And I pray you use these words, Lord, to strengthen, encourage the brethren, and to glorify your name. So I ask this in Jesus' name. Right, so as you can see, I'm speaking on Acts 4.29. In the context of this verse, it was when, not long after Pentecost, when Peter and John, they went into the temple, and they went past the lame man sitting at the temple, and he was looking for, um, he was begging. And Peter looked on him and said, Silver and gold have I none. But that which I have, I give you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And God healed him. Now, this upset the Pharisees. And so they were 
hauled before the Sanhedrin. And and they, (coughs) with threatenings, they forbade them to speak in the name of Jesus. But then they released them because they couldn't actually deny the miracle that was done. So Acts 4.29 is actually the prayer that they prayed on their release. So Acts 4.29 says, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. (coughs) Now the reason I'm using this verse, as you'll see, is as I think we're heading into similar times as they were in where the authorities, once again feeling threatened by the doctrines of the Christian faith, seek to suppress it with threatenings and laws. And we need to clearly see how the apostles responded to the pressure exerted on them. For we're starting to see, even in what was once considered Christian nations, the suppression and intimidation of any that would stand for the doctrinal truths of the Bible. Now the other day I read about a bloke, Andrew Thorburn, in Australia, and he was forced to resign his job as CEO of Australian Rules Club after only one day in the job. Now, it wasn't for anything he said or did or for incompetence, but it was merely because he belonged to a mainline church that believed the Bible and stood for basic, orthodox Christian doctrines that Christians have believed since Christ, a church that stood for Christian morals on marriage, sex and abortion, Something which a few short years ago no one would have thought anything odd about, even if they didn't like them. But Thorburn was forced to decide between his job or his faith. He released a statement in which he said he was being asked to compromise beyond the level his conscience allowed. They made it clear that my Christian faith and my association with a church are unacceptable in our culture and if you wish to hold a leadership position in society. Now the Ezzedon Club president, Dave Bartham, stated, we acted immediately to clarify the public publicly espoused views on the church's official websites, which are in direct contradiction to our values as a club. It's a clear conflict of interest with an organisation whose views do not align at all with our values as a safe, inclusive, diverse and welcoming club where our staff, our players, our members and our fans, our partners and the wider community. Ezzedin is committed to providing an inclusive, diverse and safe club where everyone is welcome and respected. Did you notice the hypocrisy and inconsistency? Everyone is welcome and respected unless you hold to a Christian worldview. 
The Victorian Premier also weighed in on the issue with this statement against the Church. These, those views are absolutely appalling. I don't support those views. That kind of intolerance, that kind of hatred and bigotry is just wrong. Notice there is no debate. There is no, I think they're wrong for this or that reason. It's just hatred and ranting. And that is because they have no argument. There's nothing of substance to accuse the Christian of. But Christianity itself is seen as a threat to the worldview and must be suppressed. Now I hope that Andrew Thorburn and his church will take this abuse as a compliment in light of what Jesus said in Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Do you notice the hatred and bigotry and tolerance against what the Christian church has taught since Christ? It's like the Pharisees. They can't dispute what the Christian faith has stood for and the charity of that faith that motivates Christians to good works. But as it's seen as a threat to the worldview, it must be forced into silence with threats and by making laws that forces them to make a conscience decision of faith or face exclusion from society. Andrew Thorburn was given a choice, job or faith. And they were generally amazed, genuinely amazed, that he would rather refuse the job than his faith. For the world has no idea what it is to know Christ, to experience a relationship with him. They think the Christian religion is just going to church and keeping rules, and as such are easily intimidated. Now this has happened... This happened across the ditch in Australia, a nation that was built on Christian values and that is, making, that is making it clear that if you dare stand for Christian beliefs, you'll be excluded from society. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 9. Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. So why did I include this? Because this was a man in Australia who was forced to choose between his faith and his job for having orthodox Christian values which will not be tolerated if they run contrary to those who want to reshape our society into a humanistic, godless utopia. For the long-held Christian teachings show the world to be evil and that's not our opinion but that's God's. But in his mercy, he has made a way of reconciliation. This suppression of dissenting views that, that is behind the hate speech laws that we see coming into the Western countries, they aren't laws to protect a minority, for we already have laws that stop the promotion of hatred against another. These laws are purely for the suppression of any dissenting opinions and especially of the Christian faith, and those that hold to that faith. 
In California, a couple of years ago, they were trying to bring in a law banning any books seen as hateful, with their admitted target being the Bible. How the world hates that book. But it won't be long before it becomes a target everywhere. And it's because it states that the world's deeds are evil. In the story of Daniel, the elites of the day and their jealousy tried to get rid of Daniel. But their problem was they couldn't find any fault with him to bring before the king to accuse him of. For Daniel was honest and wise. There was nothing legitimate they could accuse him of to warrant his removal. So they made a law that would force Daniel to make a decision of whether he complied to a law that was against his beliefs and practice and to compromise what he believed or he had to go against the king's decree and hold true to his faith and face the consequences. Now when when they got the king to pass this law the king obviously didn't think it through or comprehend the motives behind it. But Daniel did. He had to decide either to go against the king's decree or compromise his beliefs so that they conform to the law of the land. But Daniel went and prayed as he always did. And this is exactly as the not-so-wise men knew he would do. And he did so knowing the potential consequences and knowing that was exactly what the promoters of this law were looking for, to have something for which to accuse him of. Daniel made a stand for truth, not knowing if God would rescue him, but he would rather die than deny what he knew to be true to appease man and to deny his Lord. We see this happening in this current day, Finding nothing to accuse the true Christian of, they have to make laws to force the Christian to either conform to the world and so compromise their beliefs that there's no point of difference between them and the world, or we'll have to hold true to our beliefs come what may. We see this especially in the anti-conversion laws, where a Christian can't counsel a homosexual on becoming a Christian, for a homosexual or any other sinner for that matter to become a genuine Christian means repenting from their sin and turning to Christ, and that is the gospel. Repentance from sin is an absolute core gospel doctrine of Christianity. So to make a law where to counsel that repentance, that turning away from sin, is an offence will force us to, like Daniel, to make a decision. Do we heed the law and so compromise our faith that is nothing but a watery soup of nothingness? Or we will have to make a stand according to what the Bible says is true and face the consequences. Knowing that God can deliver, but even if he doesn't, we will still not dishonour him by compromising his truth. To be like Peter and John, who when facing the same threatenings from the authorities said, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. 
It's only a very small step from forbidding, forbidding the preaching the gospel to homosexuals to forbidding the preaching of the gospel to anyone. And who is man that they would dare decree a homosexual can't find repentance to salvation? There is a God in heaven that calls all sinners to repentance, and his mercy is extended to homosexual as to any other sinner if they will receive it, and his decree carries more weight than man's. May he bring many homosexuals to repentance, to salvation, that God will show he will save whom he will, no matter what man decrees and no matter their sin. As the end draw nears, I think we'll see more of these things come to pass, where laws are passed deliberately targeting Christians to either make them conform or to make them wholly ineffective. Or if we stand for truth, we'll suffer the consequences of that stand. I think we will, as Christians, come to a stage where to compromise our faith anymore will mean our faith will be so compromised we'll be Christian in name only. That is why we must now count the cost of following Christ and be prepared to face the lion's den of the world's wrath if we make a stand for truth. Knowing that God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we won't compromise the gospel of grace to appease man. When Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego stood before King Neb because they wouldn't bow down and worship his image, and King Neb said, Who can deliver you out of my hands? They answered that God was indeed able to deliver them. But even if he chose not to, they still wouldn't bow down to his stupid idol. They wouldn't be forced to conform to what the world demands and would rather take the consequences of man than dishonour God by worshipping or even pretending to worship that which they knew to be no God. They refused to deny truth to fit in with the world. They knew that King Neb's image was no God and to bow down to it and worship it was to deny the truth they knew, and to conform to what they knew to be a lie, and would break the first and second commandments. Notice what this image was. It was an image of a man, a symbol of man as God. Man is the definer of truth, that man is the arbitrator of right and wrong. And King Nebuchadnezzar was incensed that anyone would defy that which he had defined as truth. This is the same today. Man has built an image in his own likeness. Humanism it's called. Where man is God and woe to anyone that will defy that ideology or call it fate and refuse to join the world in its worship of it. So why was King Neb so incensed by Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Because they stood against what he devised, had devised as truth. And pointing out that there is only one God, and only he is to be worshipped, it was showing that the king's image was a lie. They, in standing for the truth, exposed the lie. For other lies cannot show up a lie as a lie, for one lie is as good as another, 
And that is why false religions are not offensive to the world. But a truth will show a lie for what it is. And that is why King Neb was incensed beyond reason. The thing that greatly amuses me in these times is that a great is that a rock made without hands will smash this image that man is desperately trying to set up and build his kingdom that will be without end. That God chose to deliver then was his decision. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego knew what their stand for truth would cost them and were prepared to take the consequences anyway, believing in God. In these last days, as the Christian is facing similar decisions of whether to conform to the image of this world or to stand on their convictions not knowing the outcome, is something we need to prayerfully consider. How far do we conform to what the world demands, paying homage to their image of right and wrong? If we deny what we know is true, do we not then become part of the lie? These three men conform to the king's decrees until they contrive God's laws, and then they had to make a stand. And as people are forced to conform to what many know is a lie, but which, if you dare stand against, risk the fiery furnace of the world's hatred, hatred stoked up seven times hotter at the thought of anyone daring to question the world's narrative and saying it is wrong. It will be mighty lonely when we must conform or even pretend to conform and the Christian is standing there the odd one out because they won't dishonour their God by bowing to a humanistic image and conforming to that which they know is a lie and is sin. If God chooses to deliver or not, it shouldn't affect a stand for truth. We may well get to a place where to conform to the world's demand would mean denying all that it is to be a Christian and to deny Christ. The world will not be happy of just pretending to conform, but will force total agreement or else. There is a day coming, a day of decision, of whose side are we on? Will we bow down to what we know is a lie and to confess it as a truth? Or will we make a stand for what we know to be truth and to take consequences? We need to be like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and trust that God is well able to deliver us from their hand. But even if he doesn't, we will still will not dishonour him by saying what is a lie is a truth. We must not, as Christians, conform to the worldly image of truth, but we need to stand for what we know is truth, for to deny truth is to deny Christ, for he is the embodiment of truth. The question we must ask ourselves is this, do we conform and bow down to the humanistic image, or do we stand for the received truth as given in the Bible? 
Although as of yet in the West we aren't yet suffering physically for our Lord, as many believers in many parts of the world are, it may well yet come, but we're suffering and being assaulted in different ways. You can't walk through a mall without having our senses assaulted by lusts and covetousness. You can't have your TV on in your lounge without being bombarded with immorality and the glamorification of sin. And how much of this stains us, weighs us down and affects our faith, I'm not sure. It's the insidious nature of this persecution, the polluting of his bride we must be very careful of. In North Korea or Iran, for instance, it's very easy for the Christian to see the enemy. And I don't think the North Korean Christian would have as much trouble with covetousness, or the Iranian Christian wouldn't have the same temptation of lusts that the Christian in the West faces. It can be very easy for this corruption of sin to start to sway our thinking which is why Jesus said to watch and pray. For to do that will strengthen our hope and faith and it keeps our focus on Christ. And doing so will help us to stop that corruption seeping into our very souls and undermining our faith in the Lord. It's a testing of our faith that proves it's real. And whether that is by overt persecution or by the covert assault of sin. Either way, it's testing our faith and fidelity to Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 12-14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So those suffering for his name's sake is new in this country, is nothing new to the Christian worldwide. And in all of history, Christians have been well acquainted with suffering. If the world hates our Lord, his children were equally hated. Why? Because the world hates the light. And his children reminds them of the light, because it's the light that shows their deeds are evil. Jesus said this in John 3.20, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. It's this hatred of the light that is behind the threatenings. But it is the light that reveals sin as sin. And it's this revealing of this sin that is what's particularly hated by the world. We need to understand that in the sight of God, the deeds of the world are evil. It's not the Christian saying it, it's Jesus. But it's because of God's mercy, he has made a way to turn from that evil in repentance but it means acknowledging our sinfulness. The Christian bears testimony to the truth, and it's truth that shows a lie for what it is, and that truth is a threat to the postmodern godless narrative 
for it shows its insanity. Jesus said in John 15, 19, If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you don't have an absolute standard of truth to adhere to, then you will be deceived, for you will have nothing to use to discern what is truth and what is falsehood, except what you think might be true or you feel to be true. And because of this, you can be manipulated and even forced into deception. That is why the Christian must hold to the real truth of the Bible, for it will show what is true and what is false. And it's this yardstick we use to measure all claims to truth by. And that is why the Christian and their holy book is hated by the world, for it reveals that the world's deeds are evil. A genuine truth will always be true, and that is why you can then trust it. But if that truth is showing up a lie, it will be hated. If the world hated the Master, the disciple ought not to be surprised that they also are hated. Jesus said this in John fifteen twenty. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. There are two ways you can react when exposed to the truth. You can acknowledge it and adjust your thinking and actions to align with that truth, or you'll have to deny that it is truth and suppress it as a threat to whatever perceived truth you're trying to hold on to. It'd be like someone coming up to you and saying, mate, your fly's undone. Now, there are two ways you could react to this bit of potentially embarrassing truth. You could acknowledge it as truth, and being a little bit red-faced, adjust yourself. Probably thankful that someone pointed out that truth, and I imagine would be especially grateful if you were about to meet a great dignitary. The other way you may react is to completely deny the truth, even though it may be obvious to all and sundry, and to try to suppress that truth by turning upon the truth-teller and accuse them of being intolerant and a hater for saying such things. They may even say that they are proud to be flying low, that it's only narrow-minded bigots that have a problem with such a thing. Notice it's not by debating what is true, for truth will always be true, so you can't argue against it. All you can do is completely stop any debate on the issue with threats. As John said in 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We live in a very wicked world, but where sin abounds, grace abounds more. 
And this is what we ought to pray for. As this world degenerates back to its pagan past, and as Jesus said, when a devil comes out of a man, and there's no strong man guarding the house, the devil goes and gets seven devils worse than itself and enters back into that man. And this last state is worse than the first. And I think this is what is happening to what was once the Christian West, that is reverting back to its pagan nature-worshipping past. But as people get more desperate, as the world is shaken, more opportunities for the Christian to tell of the hope we have in the Lord Jesus, that in Christ there is forgiveness of sin, there is hope for the future, but to hold to that truth may well cost us. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think one of the great concerns for the Christian, in the West at least, is the fear of loss, loss of comfort, loss of possessions, loss of friendships, loss of freedoms. But if so, then they're idols and they will do us good to lose. If you are fearful of losing that which you cannot keep, don't hold so tightly to it, for we will be well compensated for any loss. Our Lord is very generous and will greatly compensate all who suffer loss caused by service to him. Don't hold tightly to the earthly things we care for, but cling tightly to the eternal thing. The best of our earthly possessions are trash compared to what is promised. And we may better we may come to better understand the old African brother who lost everything when he said I don't know what Jesus <coughs> I didn't know that Jesus was all I needed until he was all I had. The very best that man and devil can do is to cool this miserable body that will do or die anyway. As Jim Elliot said, he is no fool that gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We may lose our possessions in this world for his name's sake, but what's that compared to the gain in the next? We may be ridiculed and mocked for the ridiculous belief that Christ will return. But what is that compared to well done, good and faithful servant from our Lord and Saviour? We may lose friends and family, but what is that to the gain of Christ? We may even lose our lives for his name's sake, but what is that compared to eternal life? Jesus said if we seek to save our lives, we shall lose it. But if we lose our lives for his name's sake, we shall gain it. <coughs> to be counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake should be seen as an honour indeed. And many in the early and the current P 
persecuted church have this attitude. And it's an honour that comes with great reward. So even if all our possessions and all we hold dear, and even if our lives are forfeited for his name's sake, that is all that can be taken. What is committed into Christ's hands cannot be touched. May our hearts be changed from dread and fear to an attitude of joy and hope. May our anticipation grow each day as we see the day of his return approaching. And may we be praying always with joy and grateful hearts that we're counted worthy to escape these things and to stand before the Son of Man. And may God see the world's threatenings and grant boldness to his servants to speak his word. So even persecution will return for our gain. For being faithful when it's not easy to do so is a demonstration of the realness of our faith. So to finish, notice in Acts 4 what the disciples did when threatened. They took those threats to God and asked for boldness to keep speaking his word. The threats did not intimidate them like they once would have, but in giving them to God and seeking his strength, they far from being silenced from speaking in his name, these same men turned the world upside down. The very men that once cowed in a room in fear and unbelief and disbelief were supernaturally granted boldness and it can only be supernatural in the way God used them, so that even the Pharisees noticed with whom they had been associated with. They are an example to us in similar times on how to behave when truth is offensive. Take the threats to God and seek him for that supernatural boldness to hold fast to the truth. First Peter 4.19 Therefore let all those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So the take home from the sermon, the point I really want to make is this. Trust the Lord Jesus no matter our lot. Be faithful to him on the mountain top and in the deep valley. Do not compromise his truth to appease a sin-loving world. And if our lot is a fiery furnace or the lion's den, never doubt his faithfulness or his goodness. Fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith, trusting him who promised to be faithful. Will not he who saved our soul from death keep our feet from falling? Always remember, no matter the circumstances, no matter the uncertainties, no matter what trials and testings we must face, always hold fast to the words of our Lord Jesus. Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. I'll just finish with prayer.
Lord Jesus, I just give you thanks for many promises in your word. I thank you for the warnings you give us, Lord, but with them you give us. And Lord, as we face uncertainties, Lord, in this year ahead, Lord, as we face threatenings and suppression and all these other things that, Lord, we're assaulted with, Lord, grant your servants boldness that we may speak your word. And may your Holy Spirit use those words. Especially as the foundations of people's lives are shaken. Lord, that many would come to salvation through your Son. So we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um,